Please be seated, friends, and if you would turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 13, we will wrap this passage up, this chapter up tonight. Again, looking at the wonderful and wretched response to the gospel that was preached, as Luke uh, would record it for our edification. I'll be reading verses 44 through 52, and we'll be looking at verses 50 through 52 tonight. Again, this is the Lord's word. The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, and the word of the Lord was being spread through the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. This is the Lord's word. Would you please bow with me as we seek the Lord's blessing. Again, our Lord, we thank you for your word. As we've read in 1 Samuel 28 and now as we have read this in Acts chapter 13. We do come to you humbly asking, Lord, that you would revive your church, that you would fill our hearts with wonder, with praise for you, with rest in Christ Jesus, that you would, O Lord, breathe upon us and smoldering embers fan into a flame. We ask that you would bless us and bless your word going forward and that we would have a zeal that is pleasing to you a zeal, Lord, like we see in the apostles, like we see in the early church, a zeal that there was no greater truth that could be heard, that the sinner has been saved, the slave has been set free, and the hopeless have been given hope. Would you bless your word now in the mouth of your servant, bless the ears of your people, that they would hear and that they would be greatly encouraged. Now we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. It is good to be back in the book of Acts this evening. I am immediately struck as I uh, was reading this passage how timeless the word of God is. I remember once in seminary sitting at the lunch table and there was uh, a faculty member sitting at the table with us. And he made a remark, something like men have improved over time. And my brother Jason, always much quicker or maybe more bold with his responses than me goes, are you kidding me? Somehow we've gotten better. What, we don't struggle with drunkenness today? We don't struggle with all the things that they struggled with uh, in the New Testament times? And this is uh, immediately apparent to me. Mankind is the same today as he was in the day that these things were written, making statements about man's evolving and improving over time laughable to me. You can read these things, and it's as if, you're reading the headlines in the news. I mean, how many of you have felt that as we read from the Old Testament? And you're saying, 
goodness, the same people fighting then are still fighting today. It has nothing has changed. These things are timeless. And truly, they are given to us for our encouragement to see that there is nothing strange about the trials that the church faces. The things that are occurring uh, about us, are we are not alone as if we were the only ones in history to experience hardships because of the gospel. As you recall, I hope, the good news of God's salvation in Christ was held forth to the Jews and to God-fearing Gentiles in the synagogue in Pisidian Antioch. And that's the gist, the bulk of Acts 13 is Paul's sermon, right? And he's, he's giving them the gospel. He is telling the Jews, your Messiah has come. This is tremendous news. And it is not the law, it is not obedience to it that saves us. For who can be perfect, who can attain to the perfection of righteousness that God requires to be right with him? But Christ alone saves the sinner. Paul would write in verse 23, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus and Paul would also write in Romans 1.17 that the just shall live by faith, faith in Jesus Christ. Not a faith in faith itself, not a confidence in, in one's abilities, the works of one's hands, or in past accomplishments as we were talking about this morning. Um, we don't boast in these things and then present them to the Lord. But a man of faith in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of sinners, that man will be saved. Listen to what Jeremiah would say in Jeremiah 9. He says, Thus says the Lord, Let not a wise man boast of his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man boast of his riches. But let him who boasts, boasts of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. And I asked that question this morning, probably with this in the back of my mind. And what do you boast? And what are you most pleased to let people know about yourself? The Lord is the way of salvation. This is, the, this is what is driving Paul and Barnabas. This is what is driving the early church. This is the best news ever. It is the best news. And so... The gospel message, as it's presented here in Acts 13, Luke records for us how, how different groups, different people have met and responded to this gospel message. Some respond to it with amazement, as we have seen. Some responded to it with joy. The last time we were together in this passage, Luke records that the Gentiles, having heard the gospel, and that it was not only for the Jews, but for them, the Gentiles as well, we are told that they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. We see an absolutely wonderful response to the message, that, that there, there was faith in the Lord and the message that was preached. This is certainly what we ought to hope, that this is certainly what we ought to hope for. This is what we should pray for, open doors, receptive hearts to the gospel, to the message of our Lord we see an absolutely wonderful response. You're here because you know this is wonderful news. If you've been trapped in sin and despair and you've said, how will I ever get out of this? How will I ever be delivered? And you look to Jesus Christ and you said, oh, I can breathe again. I have life in Jesus Christ. 
This was the response of the Gentiles. But this is not always the response. This was not the case as we will see now regarding the Jews. What was their response to the news of salvation that the Messiah had come? As we look at verse 50, we see this, that the Jews oppose the gospel. They oppose it. Their response is, is quite the opposite of being wonderstruck, but it is a wretched response that they give. They hate the message, and they hate the messengers of the message. And we're told, but the Jews incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city and instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But the Jews... These are Jews, physical descendants of Abraham, who have disbelieved the gospel message. Jews who believe, my friends, are not called here in the scriptures, thanks to Tim, uh, they're not called Messianic Jews. Notice this. What are they called? They're called disciples. Isn't that a wonderful correction? They're not called Messianic Jews. They're called disciples because there's something greater than, than their background, and it's it's identifying with Jesus Christ. These are Jews. Of them, we read in verse 45, when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. We see of them that they are not indifferent or apathetic to the message, to the success and fruitfulness of the gospel that was preached. They're not apathetic, but they are antithetic to the gospel and to its messengers. They directly oppose it and its advance. Matthew Henry had this to say, when they could not resist the wisdom and spirit wherewith they spoke, that is Paul and Barnabas, they had recourse to these brutish methods, the last refuge of an obstinate infidelity. Satan and his agents are most exasperated against the preachers of the gospel when they see them go on successfully and therefore then will be sure to raise persecution against them. Simon Kistemacher said this, Jealousy is the raw material of murder. Jealousy is the raw material of murder. And notice what the Jews do. There are three verbs that Luke records. They incite, they instigate, and they drive. They incite, they instigate, and they drive, or they drove them out of their district. These Jews are sneaky, always careful to avoid any appearance of evil, for their big concern is not what God sees, but what men see, as they love the praises of men, as Jesus would point out in Matthew chapter 6. Friends, the gospel message that Christ alone can save is an affront to the natural man and the confidence he loves to place in his flesh. What he hears when he hears the gospel is that he's not good enough for God. And he isn't. And this is why he must turn to a substitute to do what he is unable to do for himself. He must. He must and you must turn to Christ. No, they do not openly attack now the apostles, but they stir the pot, so to speak. Notice this. And, and this is going to become a way of life for the apostles through the rest of Acts. This is going to be, I mean, they're going to, they're going to hound them in the very next city that they go to. Um, but they don't do it themselves. Notice they stir the, spot, the, the, stir the pot. They incited the devout women of prominence and the leading men of the city. They get others to do the dirty work. Devout women of prominence and leading men of the city. They seek support 
from high-ranking women who are frequenting the synagogue worship services. These are religious women, women of some conviction. They are worshipers, and they are prominent women, women of standing, women of clout, or women of influence, the kind of women that would have sway with others, such as with the leading men of the city. Commentators are divided who these leading men are. Some say that it may be the husbands of these women that are being influenced. That's not hard to imagine. Or perhaps they are the city fathers, leaders in the community. One commentator said, among the rulers are Roman officials who are champion or who champion the Roman policy of promoting peace and order. Now, I want to ask you, who was it who was creating and stirring the pot? Was it Paul and Barnabas stirring a pot? It was not Paul and Barnabas stirring a pot. It was the Jews who were working through prominent women and leading men. They were stirring the pot, stirring things up. And yet, it's made to look as though the, the apostles are the problem. You know, life in this town used to be so peaceful until you came here and had to stir everything up. We actually had some power and, and control. We were the guardians of the kingdom. And here you come along saying the Messiah is coming. And, and, and now look, they're all believing and they're, they're going away. They're following after you. They're following this Jesus character. And we've lost all sorts of power and clout. They're upset. The Jews in Pisidia and Antioch incited these devout women of prominence and these leading men, people of influence, against Paul and Barnabas. Again, to incite means to stir up, to stimulate, and in this instance, it means to stimulate them to hostility. The Jews stir up, foment, agitate these influence, influential people against the missionaries. How? How would they do it? No doubt by false stories and misrepresentations, says Matthew Henry. By making up things, drawing false conclusions, and by painting these faithful men as unfaithful and even dangerous to the things of the Lord. After all, these women, they're devout. And these men, um, and these men Paul and Barnabas, they, they clearly are injurious to those things we hold dear, and it is our responsibility, using whatever influence we have, to put a stop to what they're about. No doubt, thinking all the while that they were rendering sincere service unto the Lord by their working against Paul and Barnabas. We see this very thing today, false labels. I remember as a, as a young minister uh, in the PCA, theonomy was, a, was the big issue. And so if you wanted to muddy someone's name, you say, he's a theonomist. It wasn't until I heard Sproul, I appreciated him so much, he said, I'm asked, what is a theonomist? He goes, that depends on what you mean. If, it, if you mean by a theonomist, a Christian should obey the Ten Commandments, then I'm a theonomist. I don't remember the rest of his answer, but I, I suspect it went something like this. If you mean, should we go out and kill witches, I'm not a theonomist. But every Christian should obey the Ten Commandments. But I remember the name, the label, it was just slapped on someone without further delineation, without further clarification. And, and, and what it did is it, it darkened their reputation. It made you say, I don't want to listen to them anymore. 
We see the same phenomena with the legalist. Oh, he's a legalist. Well, what do you mean he's a legalist? Well, he believes you have to go to church on Sundays. <laughs> he's a legalist. Well, every Christian should go to church on Sundays because it's the great privilege of the Christian life to worship their risen Savior, the one who saved their souls from hell. That's not being a legalist to tell somebody to obey the Lord. That's not saying you're saved by doing those things. It's saying we get to obey, and we ought to obey because the Spirit of God dwells within us. Or we do the antinomian thing. Oh, look at him. Look, look. Oh, he had wine with his spaghetti. <sighs> he clearly doesn't care about the things of God. We do these things. Um, and it shadows or colors our opinions of others. It destroys their reputation and a once favorable opinion of them. And we have to be very careful. This is what we would term today in the modern vernacular as fake news. Right? It, it's the, it falls away. Christians are extremists. They're unloving. They're haters. They're arrogant. They're, they're hypocrites. Right? Oh, they're cannibals. This is what they said in the early church. They're cannibals. They go to their love feasts. They're immoral. They're, they're, they're atheists because they only worship one God instead of the panoply of gods. We say these things and people are looking at us crosswise. My wife was telling me about a lady she heard a testimony of. She was afraid to read the Bible because she had heard that if you read the Bible, it'll make you crazy. And so we labels, you see, we stick, stick labels on people and all of a sudden we've sullied. These Jews, they incited, they stirred up these women and men in order to undermine these men, Paul and Barnabas, and ultimately to undermine the influence of the gospel. But it didn't stop with coloring people's opinions of these men and the message. But they went even further, as Luke records, so as to instigate a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. Notice this is how it works. And we see this continually throughout the history of the church. We attack their character, and then we, we feel compelled that we have to do something about it. Because the Lord is not sovereign over the church. I alone am the only one who cares for the church. And so we take matters into our own hands, and we decide what we're going to do with people. And we're going to make sure that we get the job done. They instigate a persecution against Paul and Barnabas. And of course, if these men are what others have claimed them to be, we must, mustn't allow them to stay here. They need to go. They raised or excited, they instigated, they goad or spark them, the prominent women and the leading men, to persecute Paul and Barnabas. The root word for persecution means to make to run to put to flight, to drive away, to do so in any way, to harass, to trouble, or to mistreat, to annoy or disturb with hostile intent or injurious effect. The goal was to make life so difficult for Paul and Barnabas to such an extent that they will just move on. What did they do? We're not told. Perhaps it was name-calling. Were they now being so overshadowed by false accusation that the ministry was waning. Maybe they were kept from functioning. Maybe they were kept from food, and maybe they were kept from shelter. We don't know, but what we do know was that the goal was to make them so uncomfortable that they would leave. It was to drive them away. 
and the Jews, by way of the prominent women and the leading men, succeed. They succeed. They succeed, we are told, and they drove them out of their district. Now this is a, a fascinating point. Were Paul and Barnabas unfaithful because they left? Was their faith little and weak? Were they unfaithful to their callings as missionaries? They were cast out. They were compelled. They were driven out of the district. I would argue that they were faithful and they were obedient to the Lord. Listen to Matthew 10. You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. But whenever they persecute you in one city, flee to the next. Notice for Paul and Barnabas, leaving the city is not to be equated with leaving the faith or abandoning the Lord. The Jews, the people of prominence, made their desires known to the apostles. We don't want you or your message concerning Jesus Christ any longer in this area. And they did all in their power to make them leave. And so they did. And it was a judgment upon them. They drove away, my friends, faithful ministers of the gospel, all because they were jealous. They were jealous. And so we see, as we're talking about wonderful responses to the message and wretched responses to the message, we now see a just response to the Jews and their wretched response. We read, But they shook off the dust of their feet in protest against them and went to Iconium. Now, I can hear it in the modern ear. What's wrong with Paul and Barnabas that they would have done this? What's wrong with these men? Don't they understand that the gospel is, is about love? It's about love. These Jews, you see, they've been misunderstood. They have themselves been persecuted by the Gentile world for ages. Egyptians, Canaanites, Assyrians, Babylonians, Greeks, and Romans... They are traumatized. Paul and Barnabas should try being more understanding and allow them to continue to persecute them because that is what Jesus would do. That's the nice gospel. Right? Be nice. Pet the wolf. But it's not what Jesus would do, nor is it what he instructed. Again, listen to what he says in Matthew 10, 14 through 15. Whoever does not receive you nor heed your words as you go out of that house or that city, shake the dust off your feet. Truly I say to you, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for that city. My friends, it is a sad day indeed when we lose a faithful minister. That was my initial thought when I heard that Shannon Arnold passed away. He was one of the faithful ministers in town. I believe. He faithfully held up Jesus Christ. And so you think it's a sad day when the Lord removes a faithful minister because that's taking a witness out of a community that is dark and it just got a little darker because a faithful minister was taken out. 
But you know what's more sad than even that? It's when the community will drive out a faithful minister because they say, I don't want your message and I don't want you any longer. And that is a problem. And it does happen in the church of the Lord. Because they love darkness more than they love light and they love ignorance more than they love truth. My friends, there is a time when the Lord says enough. When people judge themselves unworthy of eternal life. When by their wretched reactions to the message of life, they demonstrate they are no longer candidates for mercy. There is a day and a time when the Lord moves his servants on. Providentially, he did that with Paul and Barnabas here. And it's not considered a sin or them abandoning ship or leaving the Lord. It's that for whatever reason, for what, however it was accomplished, they made it untenable for the brothers to dwell there any longer. And so they judged themselves. They judged them and said, we'll shake the dust off our feet which was an act, a symbolic act, that they, uh, to indicate that they will have nothing to do with the Jews in Pisidian Antioch any longer. It's a final thing. We don't talk like this in the American church anymore. We hear people say, you just need to forbear, you just need to forbear. You need to understand psychologically they're messed up. I understand that. I was telling our, my sister Sharon here, just before the service started, I remember hearing, meeting a woman who was a lunatic. Not when I met her, but before I met her, this woman actually tried hanging herself with a bed sheet over a closet door and nearly succeeded. Schizophrenic, hearing voices, and she would see the lights, the headlights from a car go across her bedroom uh, in the dark and they would speak to her, terrible things. And then as the workers I worked with said, she got religion. She became religiously preoccupied. And when I met this woman, she was completely off all of her medications and was serving the Lord as a missionary in a foreign country. The Lord is powerful the Lord is mighty. When did we become more compassionate than the Lord? When the Lord tells us to do something, friends, we do it. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This is what the Lord says you do. You do it. It is not popular, but I'm telling you, the American culture is whacked. It is. We explain away everyone's sins, and we say everyone is okay for what they do. Paul and Barnabas say, enough and we're shaking the dust we're brushing the dust off our feet and we will not come and we will not bring you the treasure of the gospel any longer they will come and they will minister to the church but they will not go there any longer there is a time for that and the lord does give instruction and i would say again we are never more compassionate than the lord is but when the lord says enough there needs to be enough. We're done. We're done with it. So what did they do? They brushed the dust off their feet. Again, it is a symbolic act that they will have nothing more to do with the Jews in Pisidian Antioch. 
what did we say a couple weeks back, but be careful for what you ask. You might actually get it. Don't wish away, undermine, belittle the good things of God, such as these Jews did. Their judgment that came upon them was just. But the question comes, what about the church? Didn't Paul and Barnabas care about the church there? Of course they cared about the church. But as our brother John Harris says so often, but Paul and Barnabas aren't the heads of the church. <laughs> They're servants of the church. Jesus is the head of the church. Listen to what it says in verse 52. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. We find in verse 52, regardless of the responses of the world around us, do you know what is the most beautiful assurance we have? Is that the Lord remains with his church. Whatever the circumstances, the Lord himself remains faithful. We see here the perseverance or the preservation of the saints. And the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Now, I would not have expected to read this. The men who the Lord used to start this congregation have been persecuted and they have been driven away. One might think that if they were driven away, the church would say, well, I guess there's no point in meeting anymore. <laughs> right? We just lost the two best teachers in the history of the church. They're no longer here. What are we going to do? You would expect them to disband and each man and woman to go to his own way. But they don't. In fact, we read uh, just the opposite. The disciples, these believers, these followers, these pupils of the Lord were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice that, th that the church there was not a personality cult. Sometimes churches gather around individuals and it shows. For when the individual disappoints, people leave, they get angry. These saints had their eyes firmly fixed upon Jesus Christ, which is where every child of God needs to keep his eyes, and that is fixed firmly upon Jesus Christ. How do we know that they were firmly fixed upon Jesus Christ? Very simple deduction. Luke refers to them as disciples, and you ask the question, disciples of whom? They're Jews, they're Gentiles, uh, and then they're followers of Jesus Christ. They're students pupils, learners of Jesus Christ. They look to Jesus. They follow Jesus. They rely upon Jesus Christ as their master. Paul and Barnabas as well, loved as, as I'm sure that they were, they're leaving as I'm sure it was quite a sad affair. They were but servants of Christ. The Lord didn't leave his people in Pisidian Antioch alone. That's a great assurance. Secondly, this must be true as they were continually filled with joy. Now, if Paul and Barnabas were being persecuted, what about this, the, the, the disciples? They obviously were going to be persecuted as well. And yet, we're not told that they're long in the mouth. We're not told that they're upset. We're told that they are filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. They have a continual joy. Their faith is not diminished. Their joy remains unaffected by the circumstances in which they found themselves. That's a good mark. That's a good mark. And third, 
they were likewise continually filled with the Holy Spirit. Their joy was there because they had the Lord himself with them, giving to them peace in the face of trials, assurance of his nearness, and all that was necessary to continue to thrive in the Lord apart from Paul and Barnabas, who had now moved on in God's providence to Iconium. We don't all react the same way to the gospel, do we? There are some, it is, they are the words of life. And their hearts burn hot within them when they hear the gospel message. And others become livid. As we said a few weeks back, for some the gospel is an aroma of life unto life. And to others the gospel is the aroma of death. It is a reminder that there is someone else who is in charge and I will not bow the knee to him. And these messengers were faithful to bring the message. And we see through this passage how the Lord builds his church. He builds his church through the instrumentation of the word of God. And by the power of the Holy Spirit. Regenerating, opening eyes and enlivening hearts. And giving ears to hear and eyes to see. To believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And in his providence, he moved these two men on, but a church was started, and it was thriving, and it was good. And so we have this recorded for us, that we might be encouraged ourselves, that not everyone's going to respond to the gospel the way that we would hope. You see, that's the great thing that divides. You'll either be a follower of Jesus Christ, or you will hate him. But you will never be indifferent. You'll never sit in the middle. And our, God, our job as a church is to advance the gospel. It is to pray for open doors. It is to speak the name of Jesus Christ and tell people what uh, God has done for the sinner. That's our job. The results are all his own. But he builds his church. And he is faithful to his church and will be forever faithful to his church until that very day he takes his church, his bride home, to be with him in glory. Let's pray. We thank you, Father, for this passage of scripture and pray that it will have the effect that you desire for it in the hearts of your people. Keep us, O Lord, we pray, from discouragement. Help us, Father, not to rely on the works of our hands to advance your kingdom, but help us, O Lord, to, um, to rely upon you. We ask that we would be faithful to preach the word, that we would be faithful to share Christ with those around us in our lives, that we would not be intimidated by them. We know, Lord, as you have promised, that we would have trials and tribulations in this world, but you uh, command us to take heart, for you have overcome the world, and indeed you have. When you rose from the dead, you conquered, and we rejoice in this victory. O oh Lord, please keep our eyes fixed upon you, and may we, O oh Lord, walk in the, the faithful path that those who have gone before us, and that we would not become discouraged and quit. Bless us, we pray. Now we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.